Good morning. Just a couple of quick commercials before we get to the sermon. I'm a sports guy, and uh, I'm a Georgia boy, and so there's no gloating in what I'm about to say, but I, I noticed uh, that as we looked at stadiums all across the country yesterday, that uh, there was pent-up desire, I think, and that's what's going on as we look at stadiums filled to the brim uh, all over the country. Uh, and I w- peeked in on the Braves game last night there uh, at Truist Field, and it was standing room only. I believe we were looking the other night at tickets, and $1,500 a pop just to stand in the stadium to watch history being made, to see Hopefully, the, if you're a Braves fan like me, that the Braves will end that drought and win their first World Series since 1995. There was excitement. There was, and that excitement was tangible, and you saw it in their presence. I want to remind you that two Sundays from today, we're going to have what has been an annual tradition at Lehman, what we call Plum Full Sunday. It's uh, also or a, a likeness or equivalent to a homecoming, a coming home Sunday, uh, a reunion of sorts. It'll be a church eat. Church Sunday, where we'll have a worship, Bible class, and then a potluck, and then we'll have again an early uh, service uh, on that Sunday. So I want to encourage you to find somebody that you can bring with you, uh, and let's demonstrate our enthusiasm and our excitement, because what we have to celebrate, what we have to honor, is far greater than anything this earth uh, could boast. And then, with regard to the night, I, I believe that maybe 20, 30 years from now, that you'll look back on occasions like this evening, and you can say, I remember when this young man who's now a a gospel preacher or an elder or one of uh, the leaders of the Lord's Church, a regular song leader, I remember those formidable days when they were uh, demonstrating their Bible uh, study and their ability to know God's Word as they shared it with us. We're going to have our young men, it's been a tradition here at Lehman on the fifth Sunday night, They're going to preach to us from the book of Philippians. Can I ask you to come and provide encouragement for them? uh, To be there to let them know how much you believe in them and how much you appreciate. It's not easy to stand up here uh, and to try to share God's word. And they are demonstrating their courage and their willingness to do that. So let's come and, and support them in the preaching of God's word. In 1961, there was a ship with the ironic name of Save. It was a Portuguese ship, and it was filled with over 500 Portuguese and Mozambique sailors and soldiers. As they were sailing, they got caught in a sandbar in a storm off of East Africa. And while they were waiting for help from the shore, a fire broke out on the ship. And it began to spread to the stores of ammunition that were on the ship, causing the boat to go up in flames. There was an explosion. And in the wake of the explosion and people that were dying all around them, a great many of them jumped off of the boat into the water. And as they swam in the ocean, they began to be attacked by sharks. Those that were able to survive that attack got to shore only to find that the mangrove jungle was filled with hungry lions that stood between them and safety. Over half of the people who were on that boat lost their lives to one or more of those problems. You know, as we think about life and living life, there are a great many tests that we're going to face. And safety may be on the other side, but there are a great many things that challenge us between here and there. 
The Apostle Peter wrote to the Christians and he talks about the living hope that they had through Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. But he says, You are kept by the power of God, by faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice. Though now for a short time, if necessary, you are burdened down with trials, knowing this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire, may be found into praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. Peter is warning the Christians that there is this imperishable, this great reward that's reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. But between now and then, there are some challenges that you're going to have to face. If we live long enough in this life, then life is going to cause us to ask some deep and troubling questions to God. Not because we don't believe there is a God. Not because we don't trust God, but because life hurts so often and in different ways. You know, I'm grateful for readings like Psalm 42... Let me share a couple of facts with you about this psalm that make it kind of unique. Psalm 42 actually is uh, joins together with Psalm 43. And in the Hebrew Bible, it was one psalm. And when you begin to examine this psalm, it's poetry. And like English poetry rhymes, there are certain features of Hebrew poetry that we see on display here in Psalm 42 and 43. One of the things that sets poetry in Hebrew apart is that so often it has what we call parallelism. That is where the writer says the same thing two different ways that are very similar to one another to drive home the point. And the psalmist does that here. Another thing that they do often in the Psalms is that they employ what we call chiasm. And all that means is, is that the poet starts and ends with a very similar thought. They're parallel thoughts. The second and the next to last also have a similar thought. And it drives to the very center of that Psalm where the main point or thought or idea is. You'll find that in Psalm 42 and 43. It is reported commonly that Psalm 42 was sung in the early church. I don't know about that. I know we sing it today. Look back through Psalm 42 and also 43, and you'll recognize that a great many of the songs that we sing today come from or get their words from Psalm 42. Deep calls to deep, as the deer pants for the water and others that we find in there. As we look at the, examine this idea, we do know that they sang it in the Old Testament. The sons of Korah were the songwriters in the Israelite nation. And the sons of Korah construct this song in a very particular way. It has three verses. The first verse is a, a writing about desire. The psalmist's desire for God in Psalm 42, 1 through 4. And then you sing the chorus, you'll notice in verse 5. And then the second verse of the song is verse uh, 6 through verse 11. And it is a song about divine deliverance, a trust that God will deliver the writer. And then you'll see the same chorus that you saw back in verse 5 as it's sung again at the end of Psalm 42. There's a third verse. It's the 43rd Psalm. In verse 1 through 4, it is a song about divine direction, that God will help point my way in the way that I should go. And then you'll find the same chorus again In Psalm 43, in verse 5. It was very meaningful. It was done in a specific or a particular way. And so the psalmist puts that down for us. As we look at that, I'm encouraged by this psalm. 
I'm encouraged by this psalm because it shows me that there is one who is close to God and one that God is close to, and he doesn't shy away from asking questions. It's yet another reminder that God's not afraid of our questions. He invites them. And what's remarkable to me is that as you read these questions, it seems as though God is, through the writer, reading our minds because these are questions that we ask. Life is going to drive us to ask some questions I want us to think about, by the way, I'm going to mention four questions. If you'll want to walk through the psalm, you'll find that there's more than four. They're all kind of in those same four categories, but let's notice the questions that life can drive us to ask. Question number one is, when can I come and appear before God? Verse two. This is a a question of anxious anticipation. We don't have all the details here, but it seems like that somehow, in some way, that the writer is separated from the saints. He's isolated. And in that isolation, he wants to know, when is it that he can come into the very presence of God? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, isolated, apart from the people of God. There are conditions in life, some that we can control, some that we can't, that can find us far away from him. The psalmist is speaking of his desire to be in the presence of God as like a basic instinct, a basic drive. It's like thirst. And you'll find this is illustrated of one's desire to be close to God. It's it's something that's so big of a yearning that I just can't control it. It's beyond me. But I want to recommend to you that we've got to develop this craving before the times of crisis come. He was longing for this before the difficulties arose. And if I'm going to have that kind of a disposition or attitude, I've got to develop it in the peace times before the crises come. You know, I have had the privilege of being in several game parks in Africa, and there's nothing like the thrill of the chess game that's the annual migration. You know, every morning there in that migration period, uh, the gazelle wakes up. And realizes that he has got to run faster than the fastest lion or he may not live another day. And every morning on that uh, safari field, every lion wakes up and realizes that he has got to run faster than the slowest gazelle or he may starve and never see another sunrise again. And the moral of the story is, some days you're the gazelle, some days you're the lion, but every day you've got to run. And the psalmist is saying that he is running and the running that he does is toward God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Jesus upholds as one of the dispositions of the one who lives a God-approved life. He says, Blessed is the man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for he shall be satisfied. That's what the psalmist is saying. And he often says it. There's another psalm that we've drawn songs from in Psalm uh, 63 and verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul is thirsting for you. My heart yearns for you. When can I come and appear before you? And if you walk through Psalm 63, he says that in answer to his question, in this craving and desire, that he found its fulfillment in coming to the place where worship is done, in the synagogue, in the tabernacle, in Psalm 63 and verse 2. That in this yearning, in this desire, it changes his whole outlook. Psalm 63 and verse 3. That he may have been depressed, dejected, disappointed, or struggling in some way. But when he acts on his desire to get closer to God, it changes his point of view. You'll also find him saying in Psalm chapter 63 that there is satisfaction and there is worship 
with this craving attitude. You'll also see that he acts upon that great desire, even lying upon his bed. You know, Micah, Micah chapter 2 says that evil men lay on their bed thinking about what they can do that's evil. And, And in the morning they rise up and do it because it's in the power of their hand. But here the psalmist says, I lay on my bed at night and I think about you. And because of that, he says that my soul yearns for the living God, Psalm 63 and verse 8. So when I find myself torn by the perplexities of this life, I need to be able to say with the psalmist, when can I come and appear before you? When will it be Sunday and Wednesday again when I can assemble with your people and bring praise to your name? With all that's going on in my life, when can I get a little bit of time alone so that I can open up your word and I can eat and I can drink from the riches that are there? When am I going to have the opportunity to spend some time alone with you so that I can pour out my heart to you in prayer? As I see what life can do to us, it causes us to ask with him, when can I come and appear before you? Question number two is this. Where is your God? That's verse 3 and verse 10. Whereas the first question is a question of anxious anticipation, here is a a question of uh, unrighteous undermining. You see, this is not the psalmist's question at all. But as he finds himself somewhat isolated from the people of God, as he's not in the assemblies, as he's trying to negotiate daily life with its stresses and its struggles, this is the question of the people around him. They're trying to upset his faith. They want to undermine his faith. And so they try to plant those seeds of doubt in his heart and in his mind. It appears that not only is he isolated from unbelievers, but he finds himself in the association of unbelievers. We can relate to that, can't we? It's our experience between services. It's our experience so often when we're at work and we're at school and we find ourselves in daily activities. We're surrounded by people who are saying with their deeds, if not with their words, where is your God? When you're dealing with despair and the difficulties that are just inevitable in this life, they say in essence, where is your God? Or maybe you're going through pain and persecution and they want to know where is your God? So often they want to use any opportunity they can to demonstrate to you that your faith is futile, that your God is not helping you. At the time when you need him the most, where is he? And while this is not the psalmist's question, isn't it interesting that the questions that we hear all around us can very easily become our question, and it goes from where is your God to where is my God? You know, there are times in our lives perhaps when we are surrounded by people who are are using foul language constantly, and and maybe if we separate ourselves from that for a while and then we find ourselves around again, it's, it's... We have a sensitivity to it. But if we find ourselves so calloused by it, then it it becomes less appalling to us. And in the same way, when we find ourselves together, we find faith that's being driven. We sing about it. We contemplate it. We preach about it. But then we get away from that environment and the doubt and the unbelief can begin to overshadow the faith. But what we've got to realize is that the doubters and the disbelievers now will one day be believers. And what God wants us to do is to not let their question become our question. 
Wherefore God has also highly exalted Jesus and given Him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11. Paul is saying that those who don't believe now in the Christ who came to die for them, will someday fall on their knees and without even desiring to, their mouth will confess, Jesus is Lord, and in that day our faith will be vindicated. We'll see where our God is. But in this life it can be very hard. And then there is a third question. A question that's asked twice in this psalm. And he says in that verse 5 and verse 12, Why are you in despair, O my soul? This is a question of painful perplexity. As the psalmist looks at how the persecutors have been, and you'll notice their persecution in verse 10, it's painful, it's like a shattering of the bones, it's persecuting as they criticize cruelly, and it's persistent as they do it all day long. He's subjected to that, no wonder he's feeling despair. There are times in our lives when the, str- the struggles and the trials that we face can cause us to despair. And that word despair is a very graphic word. It means to melt away. It means to vanish. It means to dissolve. And I know that if you've been around any length of time, there have been moments of despair, moments when you find yourself in the valley, moments when you feel like that you're melting away and your struggle is so great that you wish that you could vanish. Job felt that. Job says, I wish that I had never been born. When he was going through his difficulties. The despair that hits us in this life. Can cause us to to do what the sons of Korah do here. There's a gut check there. And what's interesting to me is that what he focuses on. As he's even having this question go through his mind. Why are you in despair O my soul? Is he looks at the antidote. And the antidote to despair. You'll notice that as you walk through the psalm is the word hope. And where does he find his hope? Look, it seems a little redundant perhaps, but he's trying to drive the point home. His hope is found in worshiping God, verse 2 through 4. His hope is found in expressing gratitude for the blessings of his life, verse 6 through 8. His hope is found in knowing that God is going to protect him, Psalm 43 and verse 1. His hope is found in the light of God and the truth of God, Psalm 43 and verse 3. Before he even gets to the focus on the despair, he realizes the confidence that he can have in God. You'll notice in verse 8 and verse 9, he makes three I will statements. He says, I will think about your loving kindness, verse 8. You will give me songs in in the night. I will say to God, my rock. When you're in despair, have hope that God will. Have confidence That God is ready and willing to act to be with you as you go through those darkest days and those weakest moments. It was on a car at a red light in California. The car had two bumper stickers on it. And the first bumper sticker had a, a cute little drawing of a child on his knees, hands folded in prayer. And around that bumper sticker graphic were the words, Nothing fails like prayer. And right next to it was another bumper sticker with no picture, only the words, the next logical step is atheism. You know what that person was saying? I have no hope. How dare you have any hope? 
The psalmist perhaps is surrounded with people like that who would say to him, I have no hope. Why should you have any hope? I'm in despair. Why should you have encouragement? But the psalmist reaches out from that psalm and he encourages us that that question has an answer. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Because the last chapter hasn't been written. This is not the end of it. I'm going to come out of the valley up on the other side of that. And so when I find myself struggling with sin, there is hope as I repent and turn away from that. Oh, it may not save me from some consequences of it, but I can be assured of God's mercy and God's favor and God's grace. If I find, I'm, I can be just like David and the sons of Korah and Peter and know that he will bring me through. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. Verily he was foreordained, Christ was from the foundation of the world, that your faith and your hope might be in God. That's where we rest our hope. We are saved by hope. Romans chapter 8 and verse 24. And if we find ourselves surrounded by those who are persecuting us in some way, we can have hope that God will be with us as we hang on. And we realize as we cope, he gives us the strength to cope. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. And as we go through trials, we have hope as we hang on tight in those. His anger is for a moment, but his loving favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 30 and verse 5. A variety of questions. Do you notice them? You see, it represents, it reflects the fact that we ask questions of different varieties in different times in our lives. When can I come and appear before God? I'm longing for the support and help that I get from Him and from you. And then, where is your God? The cacophony of noise that we hear out in the world that causes us to doubt our faith has an answer. And then... Why are you cast down or, or why are you in despair, O oh my soul? But I want you to notice the last question. Why have you forgotten me? Verse 9. It's a little surprising, isn't it, with all the other things that he says, that the psalmist would camp it all on this question. Do you feel forgotten sometimes? Do you feel like that perhaps at the moment that you need him the most, you can't see him? And it doesn't look like that he is at work. And you're concerned that perhaps you're having to go through this alone. The psalmist reflects this. In fact, though, no less than our Lord hanging on the cross would reflect on another psalm very similar to this in Psalm chapter 22. And he would quote those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we look at this particular question, the psalmist works through that. And that's why he comes back to the chorus not once or twice, but three times, to remind himself that he's not forgotten. When you reach your lowest depths, reach for the highest heights. God hasn't forgotten you. How could he? And it's not just this writer, but other writers that come together in unison to remind us of that. I love Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says there's not a place that I can go anywhere where I can escape the presence of God. And that's not to make me afraid. That's to give me encouragement that I can go on and know that in his book are written all the days that were appointed for me when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139 and verse 16. And there's some beautiful promises. Some of you, this is an easier task than others, but Matthew 10 and verse 30 is still a great fact that all the hairs on your head have are, are counted by God. He knows the number of every one of them. 
Or Job says, you know the way that I take, and when you have tried me, I will come forth as gold. Job 23 and verse 10. You've not been forgotten. God cannot forget you. And the psalmist comes to understand that. Let me tell you something about how this psalm was conducted. There was a cantor or a song leader. And what he would do is he would sing the verses of this song. So if you can imagine in this antiphonal uh, style of song that you'd have the song leader who would sing out the verse, verse 1 through 4, and then the Levites, who were the leaders in the worship, they would sing back in response. So you have the, 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 the perplexity or the dilemma, and then you have the question solved and answered in the chorus, and then another dilemma, and the answer again, and another dilemma, and it's the same answer. It must have had a chilling effect on those who were present for that occasion, and it still has that effect on us, because this psalm challenges us. Challenges us, don't give in to your worries and your fears, but live your life by trust. This psalm encourages us that God is our hope. And this song reassures us that He is present and that He helps. We need that in a world that's growing in its unbelief. And it would try to tell us from so many different corners that what we're doing here today is not important, it doesn't matter, it doesn't make a difference. I read a well-meaning brother who made a statement that I could not disagree with more. He said that in worship services all over the country, that there are folks who gather to hear sermons that do not challenge them. That's an indictment on people like me, I suppose. But then the folks who are present go out from here and live unchanged lives. May I suggest that I have a lot more faith in you than that. But not only that, more importantly, God has much greater faith in you than that. He doesn't mind your questions. Ask them. But go to Him for the answers. He's the one that made you. He's the one that knows you. He's the one who has your best interest at heart, and He proved it at the cross of Calvary. McShane says that nobody gets to the throne except by stepping on the thorn. The way to the crown is the way of the cross. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in our time of trouble. Psalm 46 in verse 1. I realize this morning that there may be folks here, that it may be you I'm speaking to who is filled with questions. And maybe you're just asking, God, where are you? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to lean on Him and come to Him. Maybe it's you asking that question as one who has not yet made the greatest decision of life. You know, there's nothing that would please your Lord more than your submitting to Him and letting Him be the guide of your life to help you through the valleys and up to that great mountaintop of victory. Are you ready to act on your faith in Jesus as the Son of God? Are you willing to change your mind that leads to a change of action through repentance? Are you willing to confess that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, Romans 10 and verse 10? And will you allow yourself to be buried with Him in baptism, to rise, to walk in newness of life? Are you a child of God who's just struggling? Maybe you're holding on to that rope of faith and your grip is loosening. Maybe you feel like it's not worth going on. There's a God who begs to differ, but you also have a church family who would like to reassure you that nothing could be further from the truth.
We'd like to hold your hand, throw our arms around your neck and pray with you if that's the need that you have as a child of God. If we can encourage you, if this is your invitation, we would invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.